gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. My name is Michael Lilienthal, and I am your host on this thrilling gothic journey that we're on together. And Ethan is over there uh, cowering in the corner because he's scared of it all. Hi, I'm Ethan Bartlett, and I'm terrified. I'm actually a little scared of the scotch, too, not to get ahead of ourselves, but... <laughs> yeah, um, yes, I, I, I am, too. Uh, I, actually, I do want to introduce it. Let, let's, let's, it's not really getting ahead of ourselves too much. I do want to no, introduce is... it kind of right off the bat. Let's, I think I just let's... skipped through the, like, section of the script that's like, Ethan and Michael just say some stuff. And, like, I gave us a really good segue <laughs> into the next part, and now I'm kind of getting us away from that, but... And you're backpedaling on the Segway, and that's that's how people fall off cliffs and die. That so. is, yeah, that's exactly correct. <laughs> really trying to pedal a Segway in any manner will not result in great, uh, great times. It's very true. Very true. Try to pedal it, and you're just... Just don't. Don't do that. <laughs> this has been your um, public service announcement. <laughs> don't pedal your segues um yes so the scotch we are drinking ethan is the glen levitt nadra um i hope i pronounced that okay yeah i mean it sounded um, pretty spanish the way you said it and it is a scots gaelic word so probably not but probably not i'm just trying to follow the the accent mark that's over it which should oh, seem sure. to indicate well and like um that's also a very like greek way of reading the acute yeah. accent too <laughs> okay is it is it an accent or is it a grav it, it yes it's a grav okay because i remember i mean accent is kind of a catch-all sure you sure, sure, can sure. be more specific with that too but yeah so it's a grav. this me trying to get you on that was like when someone says well is it a metaphor or a simile and then you get to be like <laughs> well a simile is just a type of metaphor bud um <laughs> no uh and this will talking about the scotch this will not be the to- first time that i go randomly into sort of a nostalgia trip but um when i was Boy. 15 or so i did decide i was going to teach myself scots gaelic and mm-hmm. i got a book from the library that was called teach yourself scots gaelic so it, it seemed like me and the book were kind of on the you know tracking sure. together um and then, you like, can say it on the same page. I was trying not to, really. I was trying to. <laughs> I try to keep this as cla- a classy podcast. Um, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I forget that all the time. Uh, I don't okay. know why I forget that we want it to be classy. I, I also forget that, so it's you know, if we're being honest. Um, right. So I think I got to page three of the introduction of Teach Yourself Scots Gaelic, and there was a depth level discussion about how you had to remember accents grovs tildes <laughs> uh mm-hmm. it was like there's there's like four or five other maybe even macro macrons macrons however you say that word it was like four or five things that could go over a letter and completely change the pronunciation and indeed the meaning of a word and i think i yep. got to page three and I, I closed the book and i was like let's see what irish gaelic is like so that's why i did try to get you on the grav because like literally the one thing i know about uh uh scott's gaelic is that there's like 
there are accents and graves and they mean different things but uh sure. you know being that this was a book i read 18 years ago i may have uh messed up the the terminology a little bit uh it's possible yep. anyway please continue <laughs> michael no problem. Uh, well, the, the Nadra is uh, helpfully defined for us on the box as meaning natural. Yes. Um, because it is, as the note says, bottled and released in small batches with no chill filtration, matured in first fill Oloroso sherry cask. Well, mine is the Oloroso matured bottled at cask strength. Yeah, I did. Um, as you know, Michael, I did try to find the Oloroso bottling and I did not find that so mine just says um first fill american white oak casks um, okay so all right. almost the same scotch but not quite there'll be a few like differences in tone yeah um, i'm sure that there were chance so this uh this scotch by master distiller aj winchester um Rachel is, Berry has broken us to the fact that we now need to uh we now need to name the master distiller in every case. We have to. <laughs> um it's been on my radar for a while because I was in Oregon visiting my brother and as part of our time there we went to a meadery. Sure. Um the meadery was called Oren Moore, I think. Okay. Um, which is itself Gaelic. Right. Um, that means like great song or something like that. Um, but uh, while I was talking with the what what would he be called the, the meter master master meter I can <laughs> the master assume. master meter. Anyway, um, we got on the subject of Scotch, and he said that this is his favorite. Scotch, ah, specifically okay. the Nadora. Um, he didn't mention anything about the Oloroso sherry casks, so sure. it might actually be the one that you've got. Um, I mean, I think but, uh, from what I, I did look up a little bit about this uh, bottling from Glenlivet, and um, from what I can tell, the Nadora is sort of a... a um, it's almost an ethos in the sense that like they make it this particular way and each bottling sort of because of the way that they make it can mm -hmm. taste slightly different or even, you know, within the bottle, depending on how, how you drink it and whether you add ice and certain other things, like it's supposed to sort of be like a unique taste experience, like every time. Yeah. Something and that's, like that. that's something that, um, he mentioned too, sure. that like it's, it, it, it just depends on the 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 barrels right. that <laughs> that they use, so it changes all the time. Right. Um. And you know, I I like Glenlivet anyway, and so this sounded like intriguing. So I logged that away in my brain and kept an eye out for sure. it, and um, found it recently, and decided that this was the time to bring it to the podcast. So, sure. um, there you have it. There's the brief little history for cool. for this, uh, this sketch. The Glenlivet Nadara. Mine is the Olorosa Matured. While we are here, I want to give my other bit mm -hmm. of um, nostalgia about this, this scotch. Uh, uh, and we're maybe crossing the streams a little bit because now I'm doing Ethan's Nostalgia Corner, which is for uh, Freddie Goes to a Podcast, <laughs> our other book-based podcast. But... Um, Again, as as my previous story may have like 
loosely indicated, uh, I was pretty into uh, both Irish and Scottish culture from a pretty young age, and, you know, still am. But um, one of my first, the first bands that I ever truly loved um, was a band called Caper Cayley, which is another Scottish word mm -hmm. and the first album of theirs that i bought was called nadura so i have seen mm. this scotch periodically on the on the liquor store shelves and always been attracted to it like for that very specific and like arbitrary reason um wow but uh i i personally i haven't always loved glenlivet like they're it's fine okay. You know, I'm I'm never sure. sorry. To, it's one of those ones I'm never sorry to drink, but it's like it's not one I'd go out of my way to get. So I'm like, yeah. I've always been like, okay, I love the word Nadura because of this very personal connection. I don't know about Glenlivet, and like the price point is, you know, relatively high on it. And I'm like, right, that's not a good enough reason to buy this the scotch. So you, Michael, giving me an excuse to uh <laughs> finally buy and, and try the scotch actually was pretty delightful oh and the other Good. the other reason that i haven't bought it and that i am a little scared of this the scotch is that like i usually avoid cask strength uh scotches <laughs> and, and other whiskeys because like i'm afraid of them because you know i've had, I've had it's you know some experiences on like yep. 40 proof or 50 proof uh whiskey and you know it's just you know it's just uh just a reiteration of the thing we're about to say to the gentle listener of like drink responsibly like it's a little more of a challenge to drink responsibly the higher you know proof that With it is 120 proof right exactly and it's like you know it's, it's also one of those things where it's like either it'll be really burny like really ethanol-y and bad and that's terrible mm -hmm. Or it'll be really good, and that's dangerous. So it's like, yeah. Right, yeah. So I am a little afraid yeah. of this, but that's, you know, it's, I mean, obviously, Michael, you have forced me, forced me to acquire I, and I drink you. the scotch, so I have no choice. But, you know, and sometimes it's good yeah. for us to do something that terrifies us and also is a scotch we would really like to drink. Sometimes you just have to go chasing the scary thing. Um, <laughs> As it runs through the the uh, fields and hills. I was gonna say as it um, runs through the uh, uh, mansion grounds of the uh, uh, yep person you you pursued across England. Right, right, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, yeah. That is Gosh, well. <laughs> that is all I had to say. Good. Now get your wife to. Travel up here and read us the rules, please. <laughs> yeah, once again, as we record this, my wife is uh, is quite far away, but she is going to travel this entire distance and um, read us the rules. So take it away, Karen. Mm -hmm. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. 
If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thanks, Karen. Uh... Have fun driving the six hours back that it took you to to get here from your trip that you're on. These jokes will be, like, completely irrelevant to the three of us who get them by the time this episode comes out, but that's okay, I guess. That's true. Now, when Karen isn't here, I do, of course, do a Roman-style libation and just pour a little bit of the uh, whiskey out on the ground for her. Um, well, that's as it as it should be. Yeah, it's messing up our carpets pretty thoroughly, but I'm, you know, dedicated <laughs> to integrity, so. It's really, you know, that should just be a, a, an influence for, for her to not leave you so much. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't like whiskey when she's here, so that also... Oh, that's that's true. So, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have to drink whiskey, have to replace the carpets. Uh, all the know, carpets smell know. like whiskey all the time, a drink you don't like. Yeah, it's really, this podcast is it's hard. kind of ruining Karen's life. <laughs> With that, to life. L'chaim. Plancha. BRB. So, now... We get to talk about this book, which you should have a copy of in front of you as well, Ethan. I do. The House on Vesper Sands by Parik O'Donnell. Um, and I, I gave the, the reasons when I introduced the book last time um, that I, I had selected it. Basically, I found it in uh, uh airport bookstore. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it looked intriguing. Yeah, I was um, going to say, and those are those are pretty much the reasons you gave, and I was going to say they were like, they were reasons. They weren't what I would call super informative or satisfying reasons, but, um, eh. you know, that's a, uh, it's, it's, no. we have our parts of the podcast that we get to do and we don't have to have good or satisfying reasons. Uh... Uh, yes, <laughs> it's yep. It's it's our podcast, and we'll cry if we want to. We'll cry if we want to. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yes, uh, I I par- part of what attracted me to it, Ethan, is the uh, little uh, blurb by Time Magazine right at the top uh, on the front yeah. cover that calls it a thrilling gothic mystery. Right. Um. And now I have. 
I want to say, very little uh, experience in the gothic genre of literature. Sure. Um, I like Frankenstein. <laughs> it's about the the t- deepest I or most people have gotten. Um, which you know, I know there's like what what constitutes a gothic novel well when you when you um, pointed out is or sorry i thought you were asking yeah go ahead. the question well it, well no I, it, just like what constitutes a gothic novel is part of the question sure. you know to go into our, our genre discussion uh that we have i was to. gonna say like not even uh, pretending not to do it just getting it out of the way immediately nope. might be a better just, strategy yeah, than we got to used in the last six years sure. um <laughs> well, when you pointed out that blurb just now, I was like, surely Michael isn't opening this up for me to talk about the gothic genre for the next 45 minutes. And then that's exactly the mistake that you made. <laughs> and so, then, um, uh, here you here go. Here we are. Handing it over. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and I know, like, I think I have talked about the gothic genre at times in this podcast before. Yes. Um, I don't, yes. like, I don't remember exactly when. Um, I'd have to like look at a list of, Mm. I probably brought it up now that I think about it for sure in the, um, uh, the parasol protectorate, the Gail Carriger, I can think of those terms of soulless in in the discussion of soulless, probably it came Mm -hmm. up and, you know, certainly a lot of other, a, a decent amount of the other books we've, we've, uh, um, covered have at least like been adjacent to gothic literature in in one way or the other um Mm -hmm. i don't think we've ever covered a true gothic novel or even a neo-gothic novel unless you count us doing the house on vesper sands right now um which is something we can we can talk about for sure uh Mm -hmm. oh i actually Michael, you did you did tell a slight lie just now because I happen to know you've read oh. one other gothic gothic novel. Um, well, okay. Are you thinking like because okay? So here's where we get into like the definitions yes. and stuff. Are you thinking Dracula? No, because Dracula <laughs> is not okay. technically a gothic novel, and I'm going to talk about that. That's that's what I was going to get. Yeah, to. Yeah, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna get into I... uh, technically a gothic novel versus like the term gothic novel that something like time magazine could be expected to use um in a second sure. but no you were at least assigned to read what is considered the first and original gothic novel um in a class that you and I took at Bethany Lutheran College in 2010 or 2011 um uh-huh. when we took 17th and 18th century british literature um, and we were assigned to read The Castle of Otranto. Um, okay. Do you remember this? I was not. I was not actually assigned. I don't think... No, that was... Uh, I don't think either of us were actually assigned it. I think we were assigned to read the first chapter. Oh, was it just the first chapter? Y- yep. That's what I remember anyway. I was assigned... Unless it was one of those times where it was like we had to read the whole thing and read the first chapter and was like, nah, that's not. <laughs> I was assigned to read it at some point, but I did take what amounted to the same class, but in grad school. 
So I may be conflating sure. those two. Yeah, now that you say that, maybe we were just... That sounds more right, that we were just assigned to read, like, part of it or something. Uh, To be, to be completely yep. honest, either time, whether, or I guess whether it was your version or my version of events, I know I was assigned to read the whole text at some point, and sure. I did the basest of skimming um reads of it uh it is yes. not a good novel um it is not no what i would call <laughs> worth reading unless you're like very into like 18th century you know um sort of 18th century escapist fiction or like proto fantasy yeah. fiction or something really really specific and specialized like that um like sure. my brother you know really loves to read like turn of the 20th century like dime novels even though he knows that they're bad so if you're someone like that maybe right. about 18th century gothic novels or if you're like literally a scholar studying the gothic genre and needing to to know it at that right level. those are the literal only it two being times... like the first gothic novel like that's that's its real right. value and then, yeah, that, those are the only two times that I would recommend ever picking up the Castle of Otranto and reading it. Um, okay, so Castle of Otranto is this real—it's a really weird book. It's it's badly written, um, but it does kind of create like like you just said, Michael. It, its real value is in the creation of this genre and of this like almost more of a sensibility right. than a set of tropes. Um, and that's that's where I think the the nuances of how to define the gothic genre come in is like is it just the sensibility or is it the sensibility with a definite set of tropes? Right. Um, um, and I I you know I'm I I'm gonna let you finish, <laughs> but uh, I, I I I'm not an expert on what all of those tropes are. I could have a, about um, ten years ago probably. Uh, taken a test on right. that and given you the expected <laughs> tropes, uh, but it not being a, a subject that I've studied in in detail since, yeah, um, it's it's not something there. But I will say, as far as that, like the sensibility goes, you know, I mentioned Dracula as like one that has similar sensibilities right. to it, but is not a gothic right. novel. Um, like there are others as well along the same lines. I don't know if the Brontes were no, considered gothic. No, they're not. And that's that's I, um, I was going to go there sooner or later. Um Sure, but like the, there are similar sensibilities yes. there too. But what I want to get to like before I let you finish <laughs> is that <laughs> um in terms of the sensibilities of those things and I mentioned Frankenstein yeah. too, like I can I can think of those sensibilities, but then I get to this one and like there's something similar there. But I found this novel's sensibility, uh, in terms of its gothicness, a lot closer to that first chapter of the Castle of Otranto oh, interesting. than uh, the other um, pseudo gothic sure. novels that have a similar sensibility. Right, uh, and I do. I that's a really interesting remark and i do definitely want to return to it but um i have i do need to finish giving the complete history of the gothic genre and the neo-gothic genre and Please the neo-gothic neo genre um i'm not sure that third Good. one is a thing but we'll we can talk about that okay <laughs> so officially the gothic genre and this is pretty well the settled 
definition that academics use and propound, and it's somewhat arbitrary, but like in a way all definitions are in literature. Um, so it begins in, I believe, 1764 with the Castle of Toronto and ends in 1820 with the publication of uh, Charles Robert Maturin's Melmoth the Wanderer, um, which is like a book I would like to see be the Mondo book in this podcast at, at some point, potentially. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, basically, like, it's, to strictly call anything a Gothic novel, it has to have been published within that time frame. Um, and so the Bronte is publishing in, in the 1840s and um, Dracula ca- coming out in, I want to say the 1880s, 1870s. 1870s. Um, yeah. The just, just chronologically, those don't count as Gothic. Um, and we'll get into the less pedantic reasons that you could sort of say that these are two different things. Uh, but so it starts with Castle Vetrano, and part of the reason that I that I talk about sensibility rather than trope or uh, whatever else mm-hmm. is like the Castle Vetrano was written, I believe, based on a dream that I believe the author was Horace Walpole, that Walpole had that took place partly at his own house, and I believe Walpole's house. Mm. was like built in the 18th century with his own riches but it was built to mimic what walpole thought of when he thought of like a 13th century castle so it's this intentional shaping and and romanticizing of a past based Mm -hmm. on really what the kids would call vibes rather than like research historical knowledge you know so if you think of yes us an analogy to what I'm talking about would be like the fact that um as far as historical records go we I think don't have any records of pirates making people walk the plank as a punishment that that was like a thing that that theater and later Hollywood kind of or and maybe other maybe novels as well kind of like created as like something that the pirates ought to have done not necessarily like something that is is a historical reality and um the gothic genre is very much like that i think where it's it's very into the vibes into the aesthetics into the sensibilities of what people in the 18th and early 19th centuries sort of thought the middle ages really kind of should have been you know this is the time when like Mm -hmm. ivanhoe was produced um it's it's certainly like Stories yeah. of Robin Hood go back farther, but like it's it's when a lot of like what we think of as the tropes of the Robin mm-hmm. Hood legend kind of get codified. Again, another yeah. legend that has little or no basis in historical reality. Um, so the Gothic genre is very much this like spookification almost of the past, um, <laughs> and. Yeah, and you you use the word um like proto fantasy yeah. in relation to gothic too, and like with that mentality of like vibing yeah. history and creating what it should have been, you can see how that could progress into like high right, fantasy. absolutely. Like it it essentially vibes the Middle Ages into dragons and magic. Exactly. And I mean, you stuff. you can talk about a similar process and another major influence on epic fantasy with like the King Arthur legends, right? Where this evolves from 
a Roman battle leader, probably not even a king who himself may or may not have existed, <laughs> into him becoming like a warlord type king, into ultimately him becoming like the king of all England who would battle giants and, and dragons and monsters and so yep. forth. Um, and, and like I was tempted to use King Arthur as an example in the in talking about the gothic vibes but like they're related but but different and i i, I think that would be kind of a confusing different. example so i avoided that um mm -hmm. now i did do you know michael you said you didn't kind of you haven't studied the genre too much uh for my 18th right. uh, I, I think in in grad school it was called early british novel so basically anything before mm -hmm. the victorians uh 16th 17th 18th maybe crossing over into the early nine very early 19th century um class that i had uh i did actually do my term paper for that class on uh the gothic genre and one of the most famous novels in that genre which is called the monk by matthew lewis um hmm. which is like a novel i've been tempted to bring to this podcast but it's like a little bit long to be a standard book but a little bit short to be a mondo book um and it's also not mm -hmm. a great book. I I could I could <laughs> see an argument for it being a good book, depending on your definition of good. But anyway, um, so I did go into a lot of the theory of the Gothic, and some theorists, some like literary theorists uh, or literary critics, uh, basically theorized that the Gothic existed in this window of time because it could not exist before it, and by the end of the window, it's kind of things have kind of evolved past it. So like almost the Gothic genre yeah. as it's strictly academically defined could only exist in this window of time. Part of which has to do with um, the idea of the uncanny, which a lot of scholars and critics say only starts to exist in the 18th century as a result of um, uh, the enlightenment, essentially. So the enlightenment, mm -hmm. and I'm not, qualified or interested in giving a a whole you know history of philosophy lesson about the enlightenment but for our purposes the enlightenment sort of is the site or the the time of almost a bifurcation in the mind of the western world um europe and what would shortly be america you know mm -hmm. intellectual life um in the sense that uh the the enlightenment comes to center essentially the scientific method things that are observable repeatable <laughs> um you know you can do one set of things in one place on the globe a completely different person can do the exact same set of things on the other side of the globe it works the same that kind of uh materialism and and scientism becomes very privileged in the enlightenment and affects just sort of everything especially philosophy and religion um, as well as like what we now call actual science and that that distinction is is a very enlightenment distinction um and the way that a lot of scholars see it making its way into literature is that uh it, it creates this this sense of the uncanny um in that literature is often used to explore sort of the dark side or the the hidden side of human experience and um a lot of a lot of tropes that we associate both with like gothic and with supernatural fiction or horror fiction come about from this time talking ghosts vampires you know i think werewolves are coming to being in the in within the gothic genre um 
other you know what we'd call the the spooky stuff or the or the haunty stuff or whatever um a lot of what we know today as that comes into being in literature in this exact time period now it's drawing from earlier legends and and traditions and so forth but like the way that we know it today comes into being and these two are related in the sense that the theory i believe is that sort of the the gothic gothic fiction comes about as this reaction against the pure materialism of the enlightenment and it comes about to sort of sort of uh uh incarnate or or uh mediate the idea that like materialism explains a lot but it doesn't seem to be a complete worldview like the more you try to make materialism right. into a complete worldview the the more that a completion kind of slips out of your fingers almost and so the idea of like ghosts and you know a, a lot of these supernatural elements is the is sort of a uh the idea that um you know we've come we the enlightenment made us very comfortable with materialism very quickly so anything that sort of shifts that comfort or makes us feel like there's there's you know uh more things on heaven and earth horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy anything like that that's the mm -hmm. uncanny and that's you know a lot a lot of people actually draw right. like kind of think that hamlet invented a lot of this stuff um or you know invent it was like sure. hamlet was like proto the proto gothic because you know if any mm -hmm. if any writer of literature could see into the future um literally or metaphorically <laughs> like shakespeare is definitely a candidate so um you know the oh yeah uh, in fact in in my grad school class when we were talking about uh we were talking about the gothic genre as we were getting into uh, uh, that specific part of 18th century literature. Um, I remember reading, uh, uh, is it The Very Witching Time of Night, I think is for, is one of the ghosts monologues in Hamlet. Um, and there's, hmm. unless I'm confusing that with uh, Macbeth, but... Um, there's there's a monologue that I believe Hamlet's father's ghost has in Hamlet where he talks about like when churchyards yawn and and graves belch forth their dead or however yeah. that goes. Maybe that's like his first big monologue. But specifically, so. my professor brought into class Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet and then showed that monologue because it had this kind of montage of like images associated uh, with it, and they're all gothic gothic literature images. They're all you know. Uh, that's fantastic uh, creepy graveyards with cracked stone and and wreathed in mist and and all of these like images that come to branagh from 18th century gothic novels that he's then projecting obviously kind of backwards onto hamlet um okay right as one yes yeah. so that's that's sort of the the best quick overview of the specifically the gothic genre um, again, as more strictly defined by academics that I that I can probably muster. Um, so, uh, and I guess I guess just to say, so Castle Vetranto is obviously um, sort of the the considered the opening salvo. Um, Anne Radcliffe is a major writer in this genre. I have not read much of her at mm -hmm. all. If I understand correctly, though, often like. The, all the spooky, spooky stuff. This is a family podcast. Uh, would have, uh, 
very naturalistic explanations ultimately um a little bit a little bit along the lines of the devil in the dark water uh uh you know in the sense that it's like some real spooky stuff was going down but then by the end it's like oh well that door just blows in the wind it's not being walked through by ghosts and the ghost was just the moonlight reflecting off the pond or what you know stuff like that um Whereas, like, Castle of Otranto is, in some senses, straight up a fantasy novel. Uh, the the monk that I mentioned is another sort of major pillar of the gothic genre. Uh, you know, it and in, in that novel, like, straight up, the devil exists, and, like, he, you know, makes deals with people and possesses people, and, and you know, uh, also, and I'm sorry for, like, the, the uh, historical stereotyping, if not slurring, that what I'm about to say represents, but the wandering Jew is a character in this novel who is a legend, mm-hmm. you know, that going dating back to at least the Renaissance of supposedly a Jewish man who I think saw Christ crucified, but refused to believe he was the son of God and was therefore cursed to, you know, wander the globe for uh, eternity or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, and again, it's like, it, it definitely, there's definitely a racist history to that, that, if we were doing the monk or something, I would I would unpack further. But what I'm saying is like, in in the monk, like a bunch of the supernatural stuff exists, and it doesn't really have an explanation. It's not really explained away. It's just there. It just happens. Um, and then sure. you know, uh, Frankenstein comes out in 1818, and it is considered a true gothic novel. So it's like the one true gothic novel. A lot of people who like either just have a high school level mm-hmm. education in literature or even graduated undergrad with a lit degree. It's like the only Gothic novel a lot of those people will have read. Um, and of course in Frankenstein, a lot of spooky, scary stuff goes down, but it's all like has sort of a scientific explanation. So it's more like what we'd call science fiction. Um, and then again in Melmoth right. the Wanderer, often considered the last true Gothic novel, um, uh, again, uh, Melmoth is someone who uh, sells his soul to the devil in order to live for 400 years. And, like, that's never, you know, and he just is. He's a, a borderline immortal who wanders through history and through, you know, books and stuff. And, like, he, <laughs> so this is, this is I, I, I bring up all of these different pillars to sort of support the thing I started out saying about the gothic genre really being kind of hard to define, especially from our perspective where a lot of these things have been sort of built out into different genres that are that are not obviously the same oh yeah but it's just like it's like vibes it's like you know Anne radcliffe's novels kind of today might just be considered sort of mainstream fiction whereas frankenstein would be science fiction and castle of Otranto would be fantasy but it's like mm-hmm. it's almost like these people couldn't necessarily have told you what a gothic novel was but they knew it if they saw it Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's that. And then to get into sort of, um, as I understand, uh, the Bronte sisters, like a lot of people, if you ask them to name a Gothic novel, they'd say Wuthering Heights, right? Or, or maybe Jane Eyre. Oh, sure. Um, those books mm. are both, if I understand and remember correctly, are both considered neo-Gothic novels. Um, okay. so sort of again sort of resurrecting the gothic vibes but like in a different way to you know the especially if you get far 
farther into like the literary criticism aspect where are we doing sort of a um you know are we responding to cultural currents or whatever it's like the cultural currents in the 1840s and again in the 1870s or 1880s were Dracula or some of Wilkie Collins's novels like The Woman mm. in White or The Sleepwalker are sometimes considered like neo-gothic like I think part of the reason they're not considered true gothic novels is they're not necessarily responding to the same things they're just using similar aesthetics and then sure. I, I made a joke about the neo-neo-gothic because I don't know what you call like the 20th century and, and 21st century novels that kind of have mm. those vibes but like you know Anne Rice in her vampire books would be someone drawing on this yeah. tradition. Um, I mean, there's there's certainly a lot. And then you have the discussion about, like, when the fantasy genre sort of takes off, how, do they get... Or, or indeed, when the horror genre takes off, do they do... Does gothic kind of get subsumed as just like, oh, this is just what horror is now or something? Like, that could get very complicated. And I'm not sure. super interested in parsing all of that out at least not right now because i feel like i've yeah. uh been doing this ted talk for far too long already um but <laughs> i guess all of that is to bring us to michael um to to really yes. just set the set the what do you call that place setting except this is like when mom's setting the place for thanksgiving dinner and everyone's hungry and just wants to get to eating and she's insisting that every single fork be lined up right i've <laughs> i've done a lot of table setting is what i'm saying and um but i think i think all of that has at least some bearing on this book and whether it's a gothic novel and what that even means um but you're the host yep. so i don't want to i don't want to railroad us any too much more no, that's fair. And I appreciate the context because it does inform whether this can be called a gothic novel, which, again, in terms of genre, I'm not necessarily interested in specifying that too Well, you know, um, it's just kind of a helpful yeah. road sign. And like the genre discussion is always bifurcated, analysis. I guess, because genre, I think, has two elements to it. One is... It's a useful tool for publishers and bookstores and other booksellers to sort of put books into areas of the store that you might expect them to be in. And I'm super not interested in that oh, yeah. at all. Um, but I think the other, you know, definition or whatever is like putting books in conversation with each other um, to where if mm -hmm. you're going to claim... Yep. The House on Vesper Sands, if you're going to claim that for a gothic novel. Excuse me. Uh, the question I then instantly become interested in is like, oh, okay. Then how is this related to or a commentary on Melmoth the Wanderer or Frankenstein or or indeed, yep. you know, Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights or whatever. Which does um, remind me that I kind of right. tried to put a pin in a thing you said in the middle of my TED Talk, which is... Usually considered rude, but I'll yeah. allow it because it was my TED Talk, but it's your your podcast <laughs> to host. Um, is, is that you said that this book reminded you of more than anything that you had encountered of the castle of Otranto, and certainly more than, I think you said, of, of like Frankenstein or, yeah. or Dracula or something. Of, of anything that in my own brain can be called gothic sure. or pseudo-gothic or neo-gothic, uh, it sure. vibed 
closer to okay. the castle of Otranto. Um, the one chapter <laughs> of the castle of Otranto that I've read. Yeah. I'm really interested um, in that. I'm really curious. Now, about that. Okay. And it, uh, this, this is, um, I, I'm going to try to be as specific while being as sweeping as possible sure. as I can. Um, so this book is broken up into six parts, right? Um, and I think there's a distinct shift halfway through the book at the end of book three and beginning right. of book four, uh, not book, uh, part three, part four. Um, and yeah, it's, I was it's, just wondering if I had forgotten what he called them books or parts. Not that it matters. Yeah, it's okay. Um, and it's it's a shift that I think is also represented in the character of Inspector Cutter, too. Okay. Um, and so when you meet Inspector Cutter the first time, and he's introduced not terribly soon in the novel, I don't think, either. Um, sure. Like, within the first hundred pages, but still um, not the earliest character. And he's not even hinted at. Uh, necessarily yeah. either he just is encountered and then becomes a driving force um right but when you meet him i think he vibes like a, a, a sherlock holmes type <laughs> sure um being he he's an intelligent but abrasive inspector um who which i know holmes isn't a, a police officer i mean anything, but like i was i was going to allow that in the sense that holmes could be considered an inspector with a small eye for sure yes yes um that's that's what i'm going for there and <laughs> um so the way it goes across uh in their investigations uh cutter seems very much like a holmes um mm. but then by you by the time you get to part 4 um cutter shifts into becoming more like a Van Helsing character. Oh, sure. Um, so the, this sort of, um, and it's interesting you bring up like enlightenment stuff too, because um, that, you know, that deductive reasoning is all there is about um, Sherlock Holmes, right? It's, it's very right. scientific method. Um, but then you get to Van Helsing, and while Dracula isn't a gothic novel, it does um, embrace some of those themes. Um, uh, but it also, with with the, the Van Helsing character himself, he kind of scientificizes the uncanny. <laughs> Right. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, and, and that's maybe a breaking point, too, with Cutter as well, because he has a line in here where uh, he he says something like um, he doesn't understand. He's just like following it. And right. Um, so that, that that lends itself to a little more gothic than Dracula might be. Um, sure. With Van Helsing. Um, yeah. I and you know one of my very very few moral failings is the fact that I still have never read Dracula. Oh. Um, so I you know I don't know it from uh, as a primary source but what strikes me about that is actually and this is this is something I'm kind of interested in in this novel especially mm -hmm. 
if we're going to, as we do not have to, put it in conversation with The Devil in Dark Water. Um, oh, sure. Because I thought, that, like, one of the things I thought about accusing you of doing as we opened the discussion on this novel uh, before you baited me into uh, giving my um, gothic genre TED Talk, uh, I was going to accuse you of just um, uh, bringing the devil in the dark water colon uh, syndicate. I think it's the <laughs> Assassin's Creed game where you go from like the 18th century into the 19th century. Nice. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, after that joke for five people, um, yeah, uh, what, what I was starting to say, I guess, is uh, uh, that, that it strikes me that what you've just said about Van Helsing in Dracula is a very late 19th century sensibility brought to sort of a gothic world, and right. Cutters is almost like a in some ways a very early 21st century sensibility yeah <laughs> excuse me in the sense that like you know the the late 19th century especially for let's face it white men was very much about documenting and and science sciencizing um things <laughs> that had previously been sort of considered you know superstitious or whatever like you get the mm-hmm. the image of like the the missionary scientist in the South Seas who's, like, getting told that the tsunamis come because the, you know, sea god is angry and who's very condescendingly just documenting when they come and thinking that they have to do more with the cycles of the earth or something. It's like right. the, the weather or something. You know, just that, like, complete sort of a misapprehension of the, the purpose and uses of of myth and storytelling. Um, and that, like, not to accuse Bram Stoker or his character of any of the negative connotations of that, but just that sensibility of, like, Mm -hmm. approaching the supernatural or approaching the inexplicable with a scientific mindset. Whereas, you know, in a lot of ways in the early 21st century, I think we've been so put through the ringer of all of these these kinds of debates and, and discussions, and it's like you know, everyone has a camera on them at all times in our mm-hmm. world, and we still can't decide if ghosts are real or if right. UFOs are a thing. <laughs> um, that it is, it, it, there's, there's like, it, it strikes me as a very of-the-moment sensibility to just be like, you know what, I don't, I don't know. This could be the one thing, could be the other thing. I'm just following it. Right. Um, <laughs> though that said, the other thing that strikes me about that is a, is that it's a very, it is a very Sherlock Holmesian sensibility. Like, I completely agree with you that Cutter seems mm-hmm. like a Holmesian character. Um, and of course, one of Sherlock Holmes's famous uh, lines that I think, unlike Elementary, My Dear Watson, I think is actually from the Conan Doyle uh, stories and novels, um, mm-hmm. is the line, you know, something to the effect of when you've eliminated the impossible, impossible what remains... remains. However improbable yeah. must be the truth, yes. Right. And it's mm-hmm. it's almost like as if uh, o- O'Donnell here is like putting his, his Holmesian character through something that, Sher- that Conan Doyle never put Sherlock through, at least as far as I'm aware, which is like right. arriving at the conclusion that this is something that's simply inexplicable and probably supernatural, at least depending on mm-hmm. your definition of supernatural. So it's almost like Cutter's just like, all right, 
this is this is this what is it is, real, and I'm just and... yeah, this, yeah, exactly. This is real. Uh, I can't explain it. I can't understand it. Now I'm just mm-hmm. following it and doing what I have to do. Uh, which right. feels like, you know, it feels a little bit like Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, like not necessarily <laughs> provably what Conan Doyle would have Holmes do, but certainly a, a realistic ex- extrapolation yeah. from Holmes's character of what he might do. Yeah, yeah um, I can see that. Yeah, so those are my two sort of reactions to what you just said. Sure. Well, and um, with this this shift in general too, like in the the whole first half, the idea of the supernatural is there; it's a looming presence. Um, you've yeah. got visions, you've got uh, references to the spiriters, um, but you don't have anything concrete. I don't think, unless I'm missing something. Um, until you right. get to the last page of book three, page two twenty eight. Um, which is where Gideon and Cutter see uh, Angie's hand. And it says the palm of Angie's hand or a portion of it had faded to translucence. Um, And that's that's where you have like, okay, here's something supernatural going on. Because it's at the end of this part, uh, like it's 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 a trick that could be played. Uh, has been played in literature uh, elsewhere where it's like, okay, this seems like it's incontrovertible proof of something supernatural, but the explanation right. comes in the next chapter or a few chapters right. down. Like that's that that'd or, be the Agatha Christie way to do it, you know? Yeah, or even <laughs> depending on the author, you know, it's it's left until the end. Like uh, even I feel like it's been a quite a long time since I read Hound of the Baskervilles, but I feel like that's the Conan Doyle sure. book is like. Yep. Most of the way through, it seems very much like this is a supernatural thing. And by the way, I wanted to note, we're using the word supernatural in its like technical, actual definition, in the in the sense of right. something beyond the natural. Um, right. Using it that way does not inherently imply any specific, like, oh, this is God, or oh, this is, you know, something else. Mm-hmm. But... It, it, it's just to say like this is this is literally beyond the what is what is in the natural order um and yeah i i agree like in fact it it it's such a common trope that i kept expecting and this again may go back to me being put a lot in mind of the devil in the dark water uh mm-hmm. I do want to come back to that too, by the way. Excuse me. Uh, throughout this book is like the fact that I was fully expecting the conclusion of this book to be, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes or, or uh, I forget the the Holmes character in Devil Cutter. in Dark Water, the Sparrow. Oh yeah. Uh, you know where they put everyone in a room and they're like, "All right, yep. here's how you did the medium trick. You you had a hidden radio. Yeah. Here's how you made all these girls disappear. Now there's all the girls or whatever." I was fully not expecting the ending that we got. Um, no, no, and and that's that's part of of this uh, Castle of Otranto vibe that i'm getting out of this um is it's primarily in the second half where you have like okay ghosts are just a thing and we've we're we're following this half shade around which i don't know if that's a a term that this book invents or borrows from somewhere else it feels like it's something that's that is pre-existing elsewhere but i have no idea it feels Um, like that but you know o'donnell is a uh skilled enough to kind of slip something like that in there in the way that yeah. you would if it were pre-existing elsewhere even though he invented it right which is like 
you know, uh, not to not to slip up and give him some of my highest praise or anything, but like it's a very Gene Wolfe technique. It's sure. Like, <laughs> you just kind of have a character reference something as if it's obviously already a thing, but like that's the reveal of the thing you've invented for this story. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um. Yeah. That's that's a very very sneaky thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh. But yeah. So that that fact that like okay now here we're dealing with ghosts and people are reacting to ghosts the way they might but also then just living with them in a pedestrian way um the way gideon does like okay it's it's a ghost and like i'm just shock and awe but then also like we're continuing on right in a ghost world (laughs) right 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 um that that feels very Castle of Otranto to me, sure. Um, because so in in Castle of Otranto in the first chapter of Castle of Otranto, <laughs> <laughs> which is all I'm qualified to speak about, um, you've got uh, a prophecy that's fulfilled with um, uh, is it is it the wedding day or the the day before the wedding or something that the the groom gets crushed by this huge helmet of a statue? Yeah, um, it's one or the other. I, I don't um, remember for sure. But then it's his ghost that appears, right? To right, yeah. his his bride. Um, yeah. And, uh, like, I forget really what the plot is. Oh, that's, um, um, you just, I mean, especially as far as the first chapter goes, you just said the plot, and <laughs> it doesn't get any, like, more logical or comprehensible from there. Sh- sure. Well, and that's, that's part of what I... I I, I I don't want to put the the judgment aspect of that onto this book, but that sort of vibe of and I'm going to use vibe way too many times um, <laughs> it, that that's coming through in House on Vesper Sands. Yeah, is what is the actual aim? What is the actual goal? What is the actual right. pursuit? that's going on here besides just the character of Gideon and his love and loss of love and this impending loss of love that's irretrievable, but it's slipping away from him as he goes. Right. Um, Um, Yeah. So it it seems like it's the plot. And at that point is not so much a concrete plot, but an emotional arc with very few roots does that make sure. sense like, yeah that that follows kind of the same trajectory that yeah. the, the at least the first chapter of the castle of otranto follows yeah um <laughs> yeah I, I i can definitely see that uh i guess i was i was also gonna say like i i i had some bad things to say about the castle of otranto and i stand by mm-hmm. them um and sort of like you i think we're saying just now, like, I, I don't want to bring those negative judgments onto this book inherently. Um, right. Because, like, I don't think it deserves the, the, once again, extremely bad review I would give The Castle of Atronto <laughs> if I were reviewing that book. Um, but I, I can see what your point is beyond that. And I guess the, the, ter- the way I would phrase it is just, like, it feels like we're, and, and again, it is in the sort of the back half of the book more than the front half. 
it feels like we're in a world where kind of anything can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I usually like that in a, in a story, but I specifically like it because it's like, okay, I'm gonna, I, I don't want to like get ahead of myself and do ratings here on the, the first episode, <laughs> especially, but I'm going right. to spoil my rating a little bit, though not very much because it's not a high bar. This is a better book than The Castle of Otranto. Um, <laughs> so, but a thing you could you say... You hear it first. Put that <laughs> on the second edition. <laughs> better than Castle of Otranto. Better than The Castle of Otranto. Famous podcast host, <laughs> Ethan Bartlett. Um, yeah, so, again, yeah, better than that. But the two books do share a sense that, like, within this story world anything can happen. We're not playing by material rules, like the rules of materialism. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not necessarily in like a fantasy novel where, or, or a science fiction novel where like these things can be explained by interdimensional travel or something, but it's like, but I love when a book can do that, like, or, or a movie, you know, or anything can do that, but also, um, sort of it's a very tricky balancing act and only like the best authors especially of this type of fiction can can do it perfectly of balancing the idea that like anything can happen with the idea that like there are no rules underpinning either this narrative or this world um right because if you go too far sort of in either direction if those are indeed opposites which i'm not sure if they are not but like it can get very easy to get to the point where like i hate dream sequences in oh especially in film and tv shows like they can be better in novels because you can do certain things with like symbolism and so forth but like especially in tv shows and films i hate dream sequences partly because it's like this unmoored sense that like anything can happen but also it doesn't matter um Mm -hmm. And I think this book definitely sort of uh, sort of danced around the uh, the anything can happen and does it matter and are there rules and if there are rules, what are they? Are we making them explicit? Are we making them implicit? And there isn't like one right answer to any of those questions if you're to make a good book. Um, right. Because like, again, one of the authors I adore the most, Gene Wolfe, Usually what he does is he has his fantasy worlds have rules, but he reveals mm-hmm. those rules to you in exactly the way and in exactly the order that sort of a real person thrown into the situation would probably get the rules revealed to them, which is often very chaotic, very out of order, mm-hmm. and very just like, you'll you'll have something that mysterious that happens on page 10 that's not explained until page 400 and you better be paying attention and remember what happened on page 10 etc so it's like yeah but that was a longer rant than i meant to do on that particular topic but i'm just saying like yeah i I definitely agree that like i I can see the comparison to castle of otranto in that sense yeah yeah well and it it is an unmooring from the the concrete rules that yeah. that come comes through i think especially at that halfway point um, i think part of the reason starts from there right 
I think part of the reason that I say that I can make this comparison, but also say uh, unhesitatingly that The House on Vesper Sands is a better book than Otranto is really to do with the other thing you were just saying about, like, it becomes like a character study or a character arc, because I think in that mm-hmm. back half, the thing that kept me anchored and kept me interested was Cutter and was him sure. reacting to the complete shattering of his worldview and the way that he'd been sort of taught himself Cutter to operate. Or Gideon. Both of them to some extent, but I was more... Okay. I, I think I liked Cutter as a character more, and I was more interested sure. in his reaction. But definitely Gideon also. Um, sure. And, and, you know, the, the juggling of, like... I mean, Gideon was interesting because he had to juggle, like, okay, uh, this changes my entire conception of reality, but also there's this woman that I love, and if I can do anything to save her, including just sort of blithely accepting uh, this completely <laughs> shattered reality, like, I'm gonna do that. Like, he, he, you know, he... Uh, the ambiguities or the, the tensions of him almost forcing himself to accept certain things and internalize them much more quickly than he would otherwise in order to try to save this woman that he loves. Like that was, that was very interesting, I think. Um, yeah. But if anything anchors the back half of this book and keeps it from just sort of flying off the rails, I do think it is, it is the, uh, it is that element, the cutter and and Gideon reacting in real time to finding out the ghosts are real. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, with that, we are uh, at about our time for this first episode discussing The House on Vesper Sands by Park O'Donnell. Any last thoughts for this first episode? Only only one very brief one, and it is that some of this stuff is foreshadowed in the first half of the book. Um, Yes. And I I just want to put put that as like a a marker for something to talk about in two weeks when we... uh, reconvene um because like there i i don't want it to to seem like we're just saying that o'donnell you know kind of forgot what he was doing or flew off the rails or whatever like there is some of that it's right. just you have to hold that intention with all of the things that we already said very good very good uh well with that um we will be continuing to discuss the house on Vesper Sands in two weeks. Uh, so read along with us uh, and uh, tell us what you think. Uh, you can contact us uh, in the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Uh, be sure to put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Room with Scotch or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. It's a group you can request to join and we'll let you in uh, unless you are stealing the life force of shiny people. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll also do your homework. Um, uh, we don't promise to do your homework well, but we will do it. Uh, there's a form at the top of the page at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. And if you like this podcast, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, us play fiasco the uh, actual play fiasco improv uh podcast freddy goes to a podcast where three grown men talk about the children's book series freddy the pig uh and discuss it and pokemon rollout the pokemon tabletop united actual play rpg podcast 
Ethan, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Bjartlett. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, I don't tweet very much, but like if you tweet at me, I will probably see it in a semi-timely manner. Good. And I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Uh, and the same that Ethan said also goes for me. And so uh, until next time, uh, just remember, it's our party. And we'll cry if we're half here and half somewhere else. That would make me cry. <laughs> yeah, that would. <laughs> Good. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.